has Jesus ever not met your expectations? Maybe when you came to Jesus, you had in your mind, like, your, your marriage was kind of in the ICU unit, right? And, and I find that typically we don't really think we should do anything about our marriage until our marriage is in the intensive care unit. So, like, your marriage was kind of in intensive care. And so you came to Jesus thinking that when you came to Jesus, all of that would get better. So you came, and then as soon as you, you went back home, your marriage was still hard. Your marriage was still difficult. Maybe when you came to Jesus, you were in the throes of an addiction. Maybe you were addicted to prescription meds, or you were addicted to alcohol, or you were addicted to pornography, and you thought that when I, when I come to Jesus, all of that is going to go away. But when you went home, your body still shook from the withdrawals. Your desire was still there, and your expectation unmet. Maybe you thought that if I, if I come to Jesus, I will raise my children and they will be perfectly moral. They will be perfectly committed to our family. They will not depart from the Lord. What you found is, is that your child did rebel. And your child has abandoned your faith, has abandoned their faith, and perhaps has even abandoned your family. And so you're left thinking, Jesus, you let me down. Jesus, you let down my kids. You let down my family. If you've ever felt like Jesus didn't meet your expectations, then you know exactly how most of the first century Jews felt in Jesus' day. They had this picture of who the Messiah was to be. They had this understanding of, of who, what he was going to look like and what he was going to do and the things that he was going to represent. And when Jesus came, largely they were left completely underwhelmed and un, having their expectations being unmet. But the same thing is true of us that is true of them when we come to Jesus and our expectations are unmet. When our expectations in Christ are unmet, it is because we are not worshiping the true Christ, but rather some illusion thereof created by our own imaginations and most of the time in our own image. And so what I want us to do this morning is open up God's word. So that as Matthew prepares to show us the image of the true Christ, the image of the one that, Jesus, that God has sent to save us from our sins. So turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We'll pick up where we left off last week and verse 15. And these passages are really intended to see, to kind of go together. And so if, uh, if you weren't able to make it last week, I would encourage you to go on uh, our website, get our podcast, whatever, and listen, kind of catch up. And you'll be able to kind of lay these two sermons side by side uh, to be able to really help make some, some connections. All right, so stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, God's word says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice 
to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. One of the things that, as we've kind of walked through Matthew, and if you've been going through Matthew with us, one of the things that we have learned about Matthew is that Matthew really likes to quote from the Old Testament. And even more specifically, Matthew really likes to quote from the Old Testament prophets. And even more specifically, Matthew really, really likes to quote from the great prophet Isaiah. And what we have this morning in our passage is the very longest quote that Matthew gives us from the book of Isaiah. It's quoted from Isaiah chapter 42, which is the very first of a series of five servant songs, a series of five portraits that the great prophet paints for the people of God so that they might see what the Messiah is to look at, is to look like. And so just as is the case always with the great portrait, Just as is the case is always with the masterpiece. What our responsibility is, is to not blow through it quickly, but to linger for a bit. To stare at it, to to take in the brush strokes, to look at it in great detail, to mull over it and meditate upon it and to think over it. And even though this morning we won't be able to discuss every brushstroke, I want us to see the big picture of what Isaiah was saying back in 42 and why Matthew is using that right here in his book. Now we should see Matthew's purpose as being twofold in quoting scripture here. We see his usage of Isaiah 42 as really being twofold. Step one is kind of what's in view always when Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament. Matthew is writing his book to Jewish Christians, young Jewish Christians, and they're bringing lots of baggage to the table. Like they got all their Sabbath laws, they've got all the sacrificial system, they've got the the, the law of Moses, they've got all the traditions of Judaism, and so they're, they're bringing all of that to the table. And so what is, what is Matthew trying to do? He's trying to show them that Jesus is the Messiah that the Bible always expected him to be. That Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for for thousands of years. That Jesus is the Redeemer sent by the Father to take care and to redeem and to restore his people. Now the second purpose that Matthew has in his mind has to do with the Pharisees. Remember, these, ver- these passages are inextricably locked. Matthew locks them together when he says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He's, he's referencing what has just happened, right? So in Matthew's mind is that we would take the Pharisees, we would take these legalists, and we would put them beside Jesus and we would contrast them. We would see how different they are, how utterly opposite they are in every single way so that we might know the kind of godliness that God himself finds delight in. So that we might know what it is that God is looking for in us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to see three descriptions of the character of Jesus from our text. And what I want you to do in your mind, if you were able to be here last week, is take these three descriptions of the character of Jesus and lay them beside the four observations that we made last week about legalists. And be able to see how completely opposite they are in every way. So the first characteristic that I want us to see is that we should see Jesus' character as being that of patient faithfulness. Patient faithfulness. And I want you to listen to the words that I'm using very carefully because I'm going to bring all of that together at the end. 
patient faithfulness. Now, when we ended in verse 14 last week, what, had, what, did, we just say, what did we just see? We saw that there's a shift that's taking place in Jesus' ministry, right? It's the fulfillment of Matthew 10. That now there's going to be hostility in the ministry of Jesus. Now there are going to be people who aren't just kind of critical of Jesus, but now they want to destroy Jesus. And so verse 14 tells us that the Pharisees began to gather in a council, gather in a summit of sorts, so that they might conspire together on how they would destroy Jesus. On, in other words, how they would kill Jesus. Now let me ask you something. If this is you, if you are Jesus and you know that the Pharisees are conspiring to destroy you, you know that the Pharisees are conspiring to kill you, how do you respond? These are the most influential people in town. These are the people with all the money. I call it First Baptist money, right? First Baptist Church always got money up at First Baptist Church. They got First Baptist money in the Pharisees. They got influence. They've got prominence. They've got power. They've got the majority vote. And they have set their, their sights, they have set their scope on Christ, on Jesus. They're going to take him down. Now, if this is me, I'm going witness protection program. You know what I'm saying? If this is me, I'm growing a mustache and selling surfboards in Thailand. Right? But what does Jesus do? Jesus just keeps going. Jesus just keeps going. Notice what Matthew says here. He says uh, in, in verse 15, he says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. So Jesus does not fall into a pit of self-pity and self-preservation. Jesus doesn't drop everything he's doing and think, oh my goodness, the Pharisees are after me. What am I going to do now? What does Jesus do? He just keeps doing his ministry. He just keeps on doing what he's been doing. Matthew is emphatic in the language that, that, that Jesus, every people, the crowds are following him. And every single one, every one that is brought to him, Jesus heals them. Everyone. This would have taken days and days and days. As many sick people, as many ailing people, as many unhappy people, as many of them come to Jesus over and over and over, Jesus is healing them. He's not worried about what the Pharisees are doing. He's not worried about what the Pharisees are thinking. Now, none of us would hold it against Jesus if Jesus decided he needed to take a season off. And by the way, like in the church, I'm kind of over the season off language, right? Like that just sounds so biblical and good, but I, like, I need a season off. Like I'm going to take a season off from the faith, if, you, if that's okay, pastor. Let's look at Christ. They're conspiring to destroy him. None of us would hold it against him if Jesus just wanted to go and retreat up into the mountains somewhere, hiding and wearing, you know, the nose and the glasses and the mustache thing. Like, like if Jesus is up there in witness protection, none of us are blaming him because that makes sense. But Jesus just keeps on. Jesus' faithfulness was not circumstantial. Jesus' faithfulness would not be determined by the opposition that he faced. This is completely different than the Pharisees. The faithfulness of the Pharisees was always determined by their circumstances. 
Jesus had just told us this in verses 9 through 14, if you'll remember. When you got the man with the withered hand, and they say, Jesus, are, are, is it lawful for you to, to heal someone with a withered hand on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, you mean, is, is it lawful to do things good? Well, how about I spin this all around on you? How about, I, how about I flip the tables on you here a little bit, baby? How about this? If you had a calf in a pit, and your livelihood was in a pit, I guarantee you, whether it was the Sabbath or not, you would get the calf out. What is Jesus saying? Your faithfulness to the law, your faithfulness to the Sabbath is circumstantial. It's got loopholes filling it. It's filled with easy outs for you. How about us? Is our faithfulness circumstantial? How easy is it for us when we face a little bit of struggle, when we face a little bit of opposition, when we face a little bit of difficulty, that we kind of put down our ministries and kind of retreat into the mountains, retreat into witness protection for a while. The example given to us in Christ is the example of a faithfulness that is not determined by our circumstances, is not in, uh, impeded by the opposition that we face, but is instead committed steadfastly to the Lord and to his will and to his mission and to his purposes. Are you faithful all the time? Or is it just when your schedule allows it? And I believe one day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to realize how idle and uh, unbusy we really were in this life. We say that we're too busy to do things, but the truth is the average American watches five hours of television a day and is on Facebook for 40 minutes. We've got time to seek the Lord, brothers. We've got time to serve the Lord, sisters. Are you faithful all of the time? Or is it just so long as it doesn't exceed a certain dollar amount? Are you faithful all of the time? Or is it just so long as it doesn't cost you social awkwardness? Is your faithfulness resolute and steadfast? Or is your faithfulness determined by your circumstances? Maybe you would say, but didn't Jesus withdraw? But didn't Jesus go away? Isn't that what Jesus is doing? Isn't Jesus getting away from the opposition? Isn't Jesus changing course in his ministry? That is completely the wrong way to view what happens here. We know Jesus is not afraid to die. Jesus is not afraid to lay down his life. Jesus, just a few chapters later, will do it willingly. He could have had at the Last Supper, he could have had a, an insurrection among, the, among the, uh, the disciples and had Judas laid, uh, laid slain by all of them. Like he could have had Peter take out the sword that he slices off the soldier's ear with it and slice off Judas' head. But Jesus goes willingly. We already know the end of the story. We already know how all of this plays out. This is not fear. This is not self-preservation on Jesus' behalf. Now, Jesus withdraws, first of all, to fulfill the prophecy, because he is the Messiah. But with, Jesus withdraws secondarily, because it's not the time yet. Because God's will is unfolding, and God's will unfolds on God's own timetable. 
And so Jesus is withdrawing in patience. Jesus is withdrawing with very deliberate thought that, uh, to allow the will of God to unfold on the timetable of God. See, faithfulness requires patience. Now that's a hard word for us to hear. I'm not a patient person by nature. I'm not good at being patient. I pray for patience. Don't be, let me just take an aside here. This is, this is just your own edification. Please never be that person that says don't pray for patience. Don't pray for patience because you don't know what the Lord is going to send. That's the implication, right? That, that if I pray for patience, that God is going to bring hardship into my life that teaches me patience. Well, then I would ask you, brothers and sisters, do you want to be in the image of Christ or not? You want to be in the image of Christ or not? You want to look to God and say, let me be in the image of Christ so long as it doesn't cause this hardship and this hardship and this hardship? Or do you want to say, use my life to God's glory, whatever that looks like. Do in me, make me in his image, however you see fit according to your glory. Don't be that guy, okay? Just don't be that guy. Because it communicates something so poor. It communicates abhorrent theology. But faithfulness requires patience, doesn't it? You have Jesus here, and he's, he's withdrawing, and, he's, and he's, he's, he knows what God's will is. He knows what he's able to do, and yet he doesn't do it. He, he backs up, and he withdraws, and he goes to another place, and he heals every single one. How awesome would it be that every seed that you sow in faithfulness, you could instantaneously reap? Wouldn't that not be great? Wouldn't that be great, like, if you went and you were a, child, a, a, a Sunday school teacher with the children for, like, one week? And the very next week, like, all of them get saved, and they come there with their Bibles and their notes, and they're sitting there saying, please teach me, Miss Eva. Please teach me something. Like, whoa, go deeper than that. Go deeper than that. Let me tell you about my, my personal worship time this week. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? But children's ministry is a desert a lot of times, isn't it? It's just plowing and plowing and plowing under the heat of the summer sun, day after day after day. How awesome would it be, like, if you could go and you could work with youth men, you, and with the students for, like, a week? And, like, you taught them, you shared the gospel with them, and then instantly, hearts, red hot, minds, laser focused, generational revival. Like, the youth ministry would just be breaming with people ready to serve in the youth ministry. But instead, it feels like week after week after week, you teach and teach and teach, and it falls on deaf ears. It feels like you, you labor and you sow and you sow and you sow and you plant and you plant and you plant, and they just don't hear it. They just don't get it. They just don't receive it. Patience. How awesome would it be if we could disciple our dads, and we could just open up Ephesians chapter 5 or Deuteronomy chapter 6 and just sit down and in 30 minutes just say, hey, this is what God's word says. God's word says you should be the leader of your family. God's word says that you shouldn't exasperate your children. God's word says you should train your children up in the way they should go and when they're old they will not depart from it. God's word says that you should love your wife as Christ loves the church. God's word says that you should, you have responsibility for the godliness of your wife and preparing her for the judgment seat. So go and do it. And every single one of them went home and did it and discipled their children and prayed with their wives and built up their families in the image of the Lord. 
But it doesn't work that way. Faithfulness is sowing in the wilderness week after week after week. And not seeing a reap, a, a, a harvest may come in the next generation. A harvest may come long after all of us are dead. The generational revival may happen when they're all in their 60s. But brothers and sisters, faithfulness requires patience. Don't quit. Don't quit. Model yourself after Christ. Go after Christ. Pursue in the image of Christ and you will find a ministry that is persevering and enduring and moving forward always. No doubt there are some here that have thrown up their hands at the children's ministry or thrown up their hands at the student ministry. Some of you, God has called you to teach a class in our church, but you got so worn down with studying week after week after week and teaching week after week after week, and you saw no effect, and so you just put it all down. Brothers and sisters, step back up. Press on in patient faithfulness to the Lord. Second observation, the second description I think that we can see is that we should see Jesus' character as being that of peaceful goodness. So we had patient faithfulness, and now we see peaceful goodness. Peaceful goodness. The words that Isaiah uses and the words that, that Matthew is quoting Isaiah is using are really absurd words to me. It says in verse uh, 18, this is Isaiah 42, 1. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. My servant whom I have chosen. The, this is the, the chosen servant of God, the elected servant of God. That God has, has held up as the one who will eventually be the first fruit of the chosen people of God, right? But what does the word servant imply? What does the word servant imply? The word servant, that, that, that's, the, that's the lowest position on earth, isn't it? A servant is someone who operates according to the desires of someone else. A servant is someone who lives their lives in such humility that they don't live for themselves, they live for someone else. Doing what somebody else wants, helping someone else achieve their aspirations, helping someone else achieve their dreams and ambitions. That's what a servant is. To me, it is an absurd and ridiculous thought to think of Jesus as a lowly servant, as a humble servant. It is at Jesus' voice that all of the universes were built. At Jesus' throne, there are, there are creatures that are too marvelous for human words to describe, all proclaiming in unison his holiness. In Jesus' presence, the mightiest of kings and dominions and rulers and powers and authorities will melt. Yet Philippians 2 says that Jesus emptied himself. That Jesus humbled himself. Jesus lowered himself to this position of servant according to the will of the Father. Humility is a jarring characteristic of a holy God. He has nothing to be humble of for. He has all wealth, all wisdom, all power, all might, all knowledge. Humility is a jarring characteristic of a holy God. This is nothing like the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees would go out on the street corners and they would wave their arms and dance and pray out loud saying, look at my godliness. Look at how beautiful I love the Lord. Look at how powerfully I walk with the Lord. Look at me. Look at me. Filled with ostentation and presentation. What do we have in Jesus? A humble servant. A servant who says, hey, let's just be quiet. Let's withdraw and just continue in faithfulness. Let's withdraw and let's just press on in patience. We don't have to call them down in the streets. We don't have to quarrel with them. See, I think the place in our passage that we see Christ's humility most clearly is in his peacefulness. It's this posture of peace that demonstrates the humility of Christ, right? Think about who Jesus is. Jesus says this essentially to, to when, when he's being arrested. He says, look, if I wanted to call down a legion of angels, I could call down a legion of the mightiest warriors that you've ever seen, and they could dismantle this whole universe. But I'm holding them back. It's laughable that the Pharisees are conspiring against Jesus. Laughable. Satan, and all, with all the resources of hell and all the cunning of the evil one, has been aiming his barrels at Jesus since before the foundation of the earth, and yet he has only been made to be a fool. And now some guys in funny hats are going to take him down? This is like a, a, a classroom of fifth grade boys trying to take down SEAL Team 6 with water guns. Like, they got, they got a chance. But Jesus humbles himself. He lowers himself. Brothers and sisters, there is no place for venom in the Christian life. Did you hear me? There is no place for venom in the Christian life. We take the posture of peace. We take the posture of servanthood. We take the posture of humility. I find on Facebook way too much hostility coming from the church. Way too much venom being spewed from the church. We are not venomous people. We have the anti-venom to the snake of Eden. We have the peace. We are not people waiting at a moment's notice to unleash a tirade of one-liners to anyone whose worldview is different than our own. No, we are those that go with the anti-venom of the gospel and say, look, 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 repent of your ways and come, but come. Christ has died for you. Come to him. You're in sin and you can't see it. See it clearly. See it as it is, but come. Brothers and sisters, guard your tone. Guard your tone. We remember what he says in Matthew 10. We are to be as, as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. We're not to be abrasive people. The gospel is offensive enough other than the people themselves being offensive. Because Jesus did not come here to kill. Judgment's coming one day. But that's not what we see in, in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus did not come to bring condemnation. Jesus did not come to destroy. Jesus did not come to kill. Jesus came to give life. Jesus came to save. 
This is where I get this from. He says, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The word Gentile there in verse 18 and again in verse 21 is a generic word that can be used for nations or all peoples. That that Jesus came to proclaim justice or, as he says in 21, uh, to bring justice to victory for the nations. The word justice there is in its broad sense, not in the legal sense of a judge bringing justice This is in the broad sense of good being restored to the world. This is the broad sense of of the value system of God being reestablished. This is the value system of of the people of God, again, making clear the image of God. This is the value system of of the exalted being brought low and the lowly being exalted. This is the value system of the repentant being restored and the unrepentant being condemned. This is true good and true justice that Jesus is bringing. This is life that he's talking about. And this is the mission of the church. This is the mission of the church. To take the anti-venom of the gospel to the nations, to all peoples, to all segments of our county, to all segments of our population, that they might be right with God, that they might humble themselves before them so they can be exalted in the gospel at the right hand of Christ. Description three. We should see Jesus' character as being that of gentle kindness. We should see Jesus' character as being that of gentle kindness. Listen to what it says in verses 20 and 21. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The imagery here is rich and full. See, in Jesus' day, they did all kinds of things with a reed. They, they grew abundantly in the ancient Near East. And so they would go and they would, they would cut them down and they would use them to make flutes. They would use them to support stuff. They would use them to straighten things. They would use them to measure things. But what would happen is, is whenever the, the reed became, began to flex, whenever the, breed was, the reed was bruised, what they would do is they would just take it down break it in half, and throw it on the fire to be burnt, and they would go and cut another one and just replace it. A smoldering wick, you got to remember there's no electricity like like Thomas Edison and Benjamin Franklin hadn't checked into the ancient Near East yet. And so they had lamps. They had fuel, and so they would take a piece of cloth, and they would stick it in these lamps, and they they would light the cloth, and the fuel would seep through the cloth, and it would illuminate the room. But what sometimes would happen is the cloth wouldn't burn. There would be no no flame. It would just smolder and it would just smoke. And so it brought no value at all to the home. Instead, it just polluted the home. It just filled the home with smoke. And so you would put it out, you would take it, and you would throw it out. Do you see the picture? You are the bruised reed. You are the bruised reed. I am the smoldering wick. I am the one who comes with all kinds of baggage. I am the one that comes filled with sin. I am the one who comes bringing offense to God. It is me who pollutes the earth even more so with my wickedness. It is me that is flexible with all of the teachings of the earth. It is us. It is us. But Jesus does not throw us away. 
Jesus does not cast out the bruised wick. He does not quench the smoldering, the, the smoldering wick. He does not cast out the broken reed. Instead, he restores them. This morning while I was singing, this was just very poignant for me. Because I was thinking, you know, yesterday I was a pretty rotten guy. I was short-tempered with my family. I was impatient. I was frustrated. I was easily angered. My temper was just always there. I didn't seek the Lord. I didn't walk with the Lord yesterday. I didn't honor the Lord yesterday. I'm a bruised reed. And yet he didn't throw me out. He didn't throw me out. He didn't break me and throw me in the fire. Because the way that Jesus does is he gently, over and over again, with his gentle mercy, with his kind goodness, with his peaceful nature, he beckons us over and over and over to come to him and be restored. To come to him and be made new. Over and over, day after day, moment by moment, grace after grace, mercy after mercy. Over, he entreats us, come to me and be made new. Come to me and be restored. I will not throw you away. You are not worthless in my kingdom. You are not a dime a dozen in my kingdom. I love you. And so come to me and I will throw the gasoline of grace on your smoldering wick so that it will be a blaze again for my glory See the difference here between the Pharisees and Jesus is the difference between John chapter 4 and John chapter 8 in John chapter 8 the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman caught in the act of adultery right they bring her here and they say Jesus this woman is guilty never mind they didn't bring the man this woman is guilty and they have rocks, and they're ready to, to pound her face in. They're ready to, to break the bruised reed. But then in John chapter 4, way before then, we already saw what Jesus was already all about. The passage I read earlier. You have a Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well. Men didn't talk to women. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Yet Jesus initiates conversation with this woman. She's at the well in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day. You know why? Because she was filled with shame and guilt. And she was tired of day after day after day going in the early part of the day with all of the other women and seeing them look down their nose and hearing their gossip and their jeers about her. And so she resolved, I'm going to go by myself. I'll go in the heat of the day so that I don't have to hear all of that stuff anymore. She had five husbands. And was now sleeping with a man that was not her husband. But Jesus didn't pick up a rock to bash in her head. Instead, Jesus looked at this woman and said, Are you tired of coming to this place of judgment? Are you tired of coming to this well in the middle of the day? Are you tired of the gossip that you have to keep hearing? Are you tired of the, the self-worth that you've just thrown out the window? Are you tired of being beaten down and trampled? Are you tired of being a bruised reed? Come to me! Come to me! And I will give you living water! You don't have to come here anymore! You don't have to know this judgment anymore! Come to me! I will give you living water and you will never be thirsty again! Come to me, lady! Come to me! Leave your sin. Leave the man. 
leave the baggage, leave the labels, leave the struggles, and I will not throw you out again. I will not be like those other five men. I won't discard you. No, I, I will nurture you. By my tender mercy, I will nurture you. This morning, are you a bruised reed? Are you a bruised reed? Are you beaten down and trampled in this life? Are you searching for hope? Are you searching for rescue? Are you just assuming that you are to be one that is thrown out onto the burn pile like rubbish? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Maybe it's the very first time. Come to him so that he can place inside of your soul a fountain that will not run dry. Maybe you're a Christian and you've just gotten trampled by the world and you've just kind of put all of that down. Jesus will not trash you. Jesus will not throw you away. Jesus will restore you again. Jesus again will hand you the cup of living water that you might live and breathe and know joy and worship. Come to him, brothers and sisters. Come to him. And church, this is why we must go to them. He is the hope of all nations. He has brought justice to victory through his resurrection. And so now, church, we go. We go that they can know about the living water. We go that they can know that no matter if they've got the if they're a bruised reed filled with HIV, if they're a bruised reed filled with impoverished children, they're a bruised reed, they don't even know where their next meal is coming from. They can come to Christ and find a well that will not turn them away. Jesus' character is inextricably locked to his mission. And if his church has his character, his church will have his mission. Again, in the beginning, I told you to pay close attention to the words that I use. I use peaceful faithfulness, peace, patient faithfulness, peaceful goodness, gentle kindness. And the reason I did that is because of what Isaiah tells us in verse 18 and what I think he's teaching us. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. I will put my spirit upon him. I will fill Jesus with my spirit as no man has ever been filled before. And he will bring delight to my soul. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved. He's saying, this is the godliness that brings me pleasure. This is the godliness that brings me delight. What is he showing us? That Jesus is the example of the spirit-filled life. Every word that I've used to describe Jesus from our text is part of the fruit of the spirit. Listen to Galatians 5, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Brothers and sisters, let us be a spirit-filled church, not a venom-filled church, that we might go out into our world and transform them with the hope of the anti-venom of living water offered by Christ Jesus himself. Let us pray together.